Welcome to Psychiatry Explored. The guests on this episode have been pre-screened for conflicts of interest and are not presenting material prepared by industry. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not represent the views and opinions of their places of employment. These opinions are meant for education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice. Welcome to our episode on the diagnosis and treatment of ADHD. ADHD is characterized by inattention, deficits in executive functioning, and impulsiveness, all of which collectively lead to challenges in work, school, relationships, and overall functioning. Most recent studies of adult ADHD have estimated the current prevalence to be 4.4% in the United States. Estimates for prevalence among children is 9.4%, with boys being 2.3 times more likely to be diagnosed than girls. In 2019 alone, one in four males aged 10 to 19 years was dispensed a prescription stimulant compared to only one in eight females. Stimulant dispensing rates vary substantially across states, ranging from 1.0 per 100 in Hawaii to 13.6 per 100 in Alabama in 2019 alone. Internationally, people with ADHD are four times more likely to have comorbid mood disorders, four times more likely to have substance use disorders, and four times more likely to have anxiety disorders. Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Nikai Corral. I am a current third-year medical student at OHSU, uh, and my interest in ADHD treatment uh, really has stemmed from my experience on my family medicine rotation, where almost every day we had a different patient coming in uh, requesting ADHD diagnosis and treatment. And I think it's really important that we um, get the information out that's accurate and best as possible. My name is Devin Holler. I'm a second-year medical student here at OHSU. Uh, my primary interest in ADHD comes from uh, the fact that I'm about to start my clinical rotations, and I'm sure going to bump into it all over the place. And psychiatry is the field I'm steering my way towards. So the more I can learn now, the better I'll be operating in the future. And I'm Sean Stanley. I'm a psychiatrist, assistant professor at OHSU. Uh, I work in the outpatient clinics and work with a number of patients who have uh, ADHD or attention problems and are being evaluated for ADHD. I also work with a lot of residents in teaching, and uh, this is something we work a lot on um, with uh, psychiatric learners. And I'm Dr. Michaela Rodriguez, and I um, I'm also assistant professor at OHSU in the adult outpatient clinic. I had the great privilege of having Dr. Sean Stanley as one of my supervisors previously during my training. And I really enjoy working with individuals with ADHD, both, both on a like pharmacological perspective and psychological perspective. Um, I, I find it very rewarding to work with that patient population. And I should mention also, I used to do um, family medicine consultations, and so I would see a lot of consultations for um, the primary diagnosis of ADHD in the family medicine clinic. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, and so the objectives today are going to be a uh, learner will be able to outline the diagnostic criteria of ADHD in adults. Uh, they will also be able to outline the standard treatment modalities uh, for ADHD in adults. Uh, they will be able to differentiate between the diagnosis of ADHD and other co comorbid psychiatric conditions. Um, they will be able to identify the appropriate first-line agents in the treatment for a variety of different presenting cases of ADHD, both stimulant and non-stimulant. Uh, learner will be able to identify appropriate behavioral and lifestyle modifications that will assist patients uh, in 
approaching their own ADHD diagnoses. And Learner will be able to identify patients at risk for stimulant use disorder uh, and apply treatment strategies to avoid further use disorders. So the first case uh, is going to be Jonathan Smith. Uh, he's a 19-year-old college student studying biology at the local state school. He notes that it's been challenging for him to stay up in his chemistry work coursework. His grades are slipping and he wants to get tested for ADHD. So question number one is, what is your general diagnostic approach to a young adult requesting ADHD treatment? I, I would say I wish I had one diagnostic approach for someone um, seeking an ADHD evaluation. It, it's often much more complicated than that. There's so many different variables to consider. There are standardized diagnostic interviews that have been developed over time, and I have found them to not be practical to actually employ in an outpatient setting, especially for a first visit, especially for someone who's trying to get diagnosed in a primary care or family um, care situation. And um, we would be doing a detriment to the patient to not give them the appropriate diagnosis and treatment because of those barriers in time and what we can accomplish in that time. So um, I tend to focus, I tend to use the ASRS as, and the DIVA as kind of like guiding points. I, I recently learned about the ASRI, which I want to be using more often, the Adult Symptoms and Role Impairment Inventory, because it's focusing more on impairment. Because in, in my assessment, it usually is about presenting symptoms, symptoms that were present in childhood and adolescence, and functional impairment due to those symptoms. I think I think you covered significantly that it's it's a challenge to get an ADHD diagnosis into a, a brief period of time of assessment and, and pointed out the main points of that ADHD is a longitudinal diagnosis that starts in childhood and it's important both to assess the degree of symptoms and degree of dysfunction that one is experiencing at the moment but also you know, is this a disorder that has affected this patient for a long period of time, you know, since age less than 12? Because statistically, if not, then it may be more likely to be something else contributing and, and looking at those other conditions as well, like anxiety disorders or depressive disorders or sleep apnea, a number of other things. Yeah. And I think adjustment disorders as well. I, I, I think a lot of people struggle to transition from working in an office setting to working from home and for various factors, then found themselves dealing with more um, attention dysregulation and, and just having a harder time meeting their, their goals. But it wasn't a longitudinal process. It was very clearly in response to the pandemic and suddenly having to shift their entire work environment. And, and I'm curious, I think that what we see at least a lot in primary care is folks who have, um, like you said, started a new job or in the case of college students, um, their oh, academic yes. environment is much more rigorous. Um, and I'm kind of curious what your take on is people kind of finally pushing past some of these um, these these methods that they've used, at least in high school, they mm -hmm. were able to get away with it. But all of a sudden in college, uh, when the material is a lot more difficult, mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious how you approach uh working through that with patients? I, I do think that there are individuals who, who have developed compensatory coping mechanisms 
to overcome symptoms of ADHD to the point that outsiders would be able to recognize you know, deficits. I think they tend to have high people-pleasing tendencies as well, or traits, and, and, and really want to be you know, helpful to their teachers and helpful to their parents. And, um, and still, I think that they have had deficits that have impacted them negatively in their functioning. And if they tell me they got straight A's, I want to know how they got their straight A's. Like they did not get those straight A's the same way as their peers got those straight A's. You can get straight A's and have ADHD, but the way that you approach your assignments and your homework and your interactions with professors and peers is going to be different than a peer who is neurotypical and does not have ADHD. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, and, and I'm kind of curious what you would ask about family history and the role that plays in, in the ADHD diagnosis. Having a family history of ADHD is not a diagnostic criteria for the ADHD diagnosis, but it can be really informative. We do know that ADHD is the most heritable psychiatric disorder. Number one, above schizophrenia, above bipolar disorder, above borderline personality disorder, way above depression or anxiety disorders, number one. So it can be really important to notice if, you know, to get a sense of whether this is something that's traveled in the family genetic line, mom, dad have ADHD child. This is a great, uh, in in, um, assessing an adult with ADHD to get a sense of whether one of their kids was diagnosed with ADHD can be a helpful clue that maybe this is a diagnosis that we should be looking at a little bit more um, uh, with a little finer tooth comb for this particular patient. Um, uh, you know, I think um, family history is also, you know, we think of family genetic history, but there's also um, a lot of other family history, like family trauma history or conceptualization of mental health disorders in a family. So some one of the biggest challenges I think we see is, you know, Adults who have attention concerns, a number of ADHD symptoms that might be even very overt in the clinic with us, but who, you know, whose family member, when you call them to get a retrospective history of this child, says, no, ADHD doesn't exist. You know, mental health problems are just, uh, you know, a figment of people's imaginations. I mean, it can be really important to understand that family setting that someone came up in to best understand how they might not have gotten the care um, that they deserved back then. I think it's also important to ask about a family history of substance abuse because um, individuals with ADHD are at higher risk of um, developing a substance use disorder. And it can be helpful to know and also for treatment planning purposes to know what risks they might be facing. Um, but I, I remember at, at one conference they went to, they essentially said every single person who's ever been diagnosed with a substance disorder should be screened for ADHD because there's such a, a high overlap that can be present. With this patient, uh, once you've established that he meets the diagnostic criteria for ADHD and he asks to be put on a stimulant, um, what are the available options and how do you think about who receives which stimulant? Um, and kind of in general, what's the difference between Adderall and Focalin, uh, extended release versus uh, kind of a, a instant release? Mm-hmm. When, when I think about 
medications to treat ADHD. <clears throat> one can think both pharmacologically about the medication, or one can think kind of efficacy based. I think it's helpful to think pharmacologically just to kind of tease out the differences of the medications in one's mind, um, but then look at the evidence empirically about what helps um, most and in what patients. Pharmacologically, there are kind of three distinct categories, I think, of medications for ADHD. There are what we consider the stimulants, and there are two different medication families within the stimulant medications amphetamine-based medications, and methylphenidate-based medications. And there's actually a significant difference between the two that I think many people don't really um, get a sense of. Um, you know, um, Adderall actually, Adderall, so um, amphetamine-based medications um, do actually have a different mechanism um, than uh, methylphenidate-based medications. Amphetamine-based medications um, actually reverse some of the processes in the cell, and it leads to a fast dumping of dopamine and norepinephrine into the synapse, whereas um, methylphenidate is actually much more like a very, very fast-acting reuptake inhibitor, so prevents the, the um, neurotransmitters from being taken back up, um, which is one of the reasons why um, um, methylphenidate seems to be slightly less abusable and less have less street value than amphetamines do because it doesn't cause that big euphoria inducing release of neurotransmitters that methylphenidate does. Um, and that leads to different policies in different countries, which is interesting. Um, in fact, you know, try to take a short acting um, amphetamine to an Asian country when you travel and you have to go through tons of hoops to be able to get letters to prove that you have the medication. So they've been allowed into their country. Um, Many countries in Western Europe do not um, approve short-acting stimulant prescriptions um, because of the public health concern over short-acting stimulants in the in the system. So the, the, that mechanism pharmacologically leads to different policies because of the different effects that those mechanisms have. But other than those two stimulant classes, um, there's also the, the what I think of as a third class of medications, which are non-stimulant medications. Um, and, and basically the difference is that they do not have the same potency or rapid-acting effect that the stimulant medications do. So um, medications like atomoxetine, which is stratero, which is essentially a kind of fast-acting norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Um, and so it acts more slowly, but it still goes in and out of the system, mostly within about a day's period. Um, and then clonidine and guanfacine, which are used in different age groups, which are actually alpha agents, which in some degree kind of bring down maybe the hyperactive symptoms of ADHD as opposed to increase the door, no, door, dopamine and norepinephrine tone in the frontal lobe to help focus people. They can actually be used in conjunction with stimulants to kind of bring down any agitation that a stimulant might cause. Um, but they fundamentally have a quite different uh you know, pharmacological action than the stimulant medications do. Um, in some re some ways, they're used in patients where the stimulant shoots people too high too quickly, makes them agitated, gives them insomnia, and then actually the clonidine and guanfacine can kind of you know work the other direction and help people settle down if it's um, if they're over activated by the stimulant medications. Most of these medications do have long and short acting forms, and if you think about somebody with ADHD who's having difficulty with attention and concentration. It's going to be hard to have a two to three time a day medication that you take. There's a lot of forgotten doses. You see that a lot in the clinic. And so many medications were formulated to have longer acting um, 
uh, formulations so that they can just have a single dose in the morning and that's all somebody needs for the course of the day. It is important to know that even some of the long-acting formulations are not quite as long-acting as you'd think they might be. Um, So for instance, many long-acting Adderall formulations still last maybe eight hours a day. Um, And so if you're looking for cognitive effect for 6 a.m. when you wake up to get your kids ready to 8 a.m., 8 p.m. when you're ready to put your kids to sleep, you're not going to get that length of effect, even from a long-acting stimulant medication. Um, One medication that I think it's important to know about, um, partly because it is probably going to be more of a mainstay of care in the U.S. It already has been in in Europe for a little while is Vyvanse, which is Listexamphetamine, um, which is the, uh, it's an amphetamine molecule that is, I think, hydrolyzed to a a lysine. It just has a a little lysine molecule added on the end that your GI tract has to remove. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's got to go into your bloodstream for it to actually be activated. um, and therefore, it's less abusable um, than other medications. It is the the main um, long-acting stimulant that is recommended in most Western European countries. And they will only okay you to take a short-acting Adderall other than the, uh, the Listex amphetamine if you failed that Vyvanse, that Listex amphetamine, because it acts too long. And then they only give you one dose of the short-acting a day because they they suppose that you probably have slow metabolism and that one's short acting will last extra long period of time, like a long acting for most people. So that's the only time they go to a short acting stimulant. But I think um, because of its safety profile, much less abusable um, when you look at the, the um, time to um, effective concentration in the bloodstream, it's, it's a little bit slower, but still gets up there and gives a fairly prolonged profile of medication in the bloodstream for most folks. Again, with all these stimulants, the medication's out of the system by bedtime for the most part. It's in your system and out of your system over the course of the day. Yeah, I would say with Vyvanse, um, for patients who note a particular kind of sensitivity to the onset or offset of their stimulant, it's a, it seems like it's a little more gradual, um, but it's expensive. Even with coupons, it's like at least $70 a month compared to a couple of dollars a month. So that makes a huge difference. Which is not the case in European countries mm-hmm. where their national government has said this is important to have, but it is when you're your system is a for-profit insurance driven system. Mm-hmm. Pull another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Fruit for f- future fodder. Mm-hmm. That's right. What is your uh, kind of general approach to suggesting uh, behavioral and lifestyle modifications in someone in this situation? I would, I would say that that is where I really love working with people with ADHD is the medications do so much. And I, I think that will get to a, the next question about like meds do not completely take away ADHD. They do, they do not make you into a whole different person with a whole different personality um, who encounters completely different strengths and difficulties. And I, I really enjoy working with individuals with ADHD who learn that, yes, instead of trying to put, you know, a 
square peg in a round hole over and over and over again, I'm going to recognize that my brain is fired a bit differently and works a bit differently. And I need to stop taking my instructions from all those other people with the round pipes or whatnot. Like I need to start taking direction from individuals who have experienced neurodiversity and who can help me to accomplish my goals. Um, so I always recommend workbooks, if not um, individualized ADHD coaching, um, skills and tools like planners that are one month at a time that you can open. I talk to patients all the time about a, you know, a pill box that isn't a week at a time, but a month at a time. So they can actually put their whole month's meds in one go. They don't have to remember to fill it every single week. Um, I think that's that's where people really express that they feel like their life is changing and they feel more control over their life. And and stimulants help, 100% they help, and non-stimulants help, but it's, it's also about just forgiving themselves. I think that a huge part of it is also therapy so that they can learn that you know, all these messages they've heard all their life that they weren't trying hard enough, that they were being lazy, that if they could only put their effort in, if they could just try harder, if they could just, you know, all, all those internalized messages that taught them that they weren't good enough, that, you know, trying to unlearn those. I, I was just going to add on to that. There's a great slide that I think someone uh, who was a PGY4 a while back showed me um, that it's it's kind of a mirror image of the flip side of ADHD. And for every negative aspect of ADHD, it shows a positive way to reframe yes. that aspect of ADHD. So can't hold one's attention, comes up with great ideas. Um, you know, all those great aspects that really truly are positive aspects in other settings, but in settings where someone's expected to sit there and focus and get a linear task done, don't often or are harder to, to see those um, benefits in those particular settings. It is important to remember that those are absolutely skills that yes. can they, they can bring to other areas of their lives. Mm -hmm. It's just different strengths and difficulties. Our society tends to really negatively view those difficulties, though. Well, th thank you so much for that message. I, I definitely I definitely agree with that. Um, and, and just to kind of wrap up this case. Uh, with this patient who uh, was originally treated uh, with, you know, a, a low dose amphetamine, um, a few weeks he comes back and says that uh, it hasn't helped him as much as he hoped and noticed that he's still getting distracted. And I'm kind of just curious how you approach um, alternative therapies or adjusting dosages on people who are now coming back um, after initially being treated. I can start taking that one on. Um, I think certainly if, um, if a patient has gotten kind of less than full therapeutic effect out of a, a certain dose of a medication, but they're not at max dose, I would increase that dose back up. And generally for most of the stimulant medications, that is a, you know, increase by 10 total milligrams um, every two weeks or so. Sometimes people go a little bit faster than that and they would might go up, you know, a change every week, sometimes a little bit slower. And that may have to do with the risks that somebody brings um, to that going up a little bit slower with somebody who might be more prone to side effects or risks of rapid titrations of the stimulant and maybe a little bit faster with somebody who's truly struggling, who may need a little bit faster um, up titration, but who can tolerate it. 
So that would be the first thing. See, maximize the dose and see where it's at. For most people, um, there is the inverse U-shaped curve of attention. And for many people, the higher the dopamine levels in the frontal lobes of the brain, at some point it might go over the edge. And that's what you know, high doses of street methamphetamines do is shoot you way over the curve really quickly. So you're on the other end of attention. Um, but if you go up um, slowly on stimulant medications and they're starting to help at first, at some point you're going to get up to a dose that goes over the edge and becomes problematic um, for attention. Actually, attention goes down. It feels like you have too much cup of coffee and people will come back down to the dose that um, that is right for them. There are certainly limits of what the evidence says are helpful doses for Adderall and methylphenidate, and kind of keeping an eye on those um, is important. There will be some patients who say, well, I need more. Nope, I need more. No, that's not working. I need more. And there's absolutely a limit to that. The FDA guidelines um, are nice guidelines to that. And I try to hold to those, except in cases where pharmacogenomics seem to indicate that they might be a rapid metabolizer of Adderall, for instance, um, amphetamines. And then um, that would then give us leeway to say, okay, well, we might be able to go up a little bit higher than the FDA recommends in your case, because we have that support for that. I also, um, even when I'm first starting someone on a stimulant, I try to remind them like, yes, there are strengths and difficulties that come with your brain being wired this way and stimulants are not going to completely change your personality. They are, stimulants are not going to make you wear a watch. You know, that is a decision that you're going to make on your own that does not have to do with stimulants being on board or not. Stimulants go so far to help us achieve our goals, but they're not going to change things, and that's a good thing. There's a lot of great things about your brain being wired a bit, bit differently, and there's a lot of really challenging things about that. So if we're going to try to turn the dial down on the challenging aspects, but you are still going to be you, and you're not suddenly going to be someone who turns up on time and wears a watch and remembers everyone's birthdays. Like, that's not what stimulants do. We're just going to try to make it more manageable. So I wanted to pause the conversation real quick and clarify some of the treatment protocols for ADHD. Among stimulants, amphetamine-based stimulants like Adderall are slightly more likely to be effective than methylphenidate for improving ADHD symptoms. These same amphetamine-based stimulants are at a higher risk of complications, misuse, and ED visits than methylphenidate. So taken as a whole, uh, this leads to the following slightly different practices. Uh, in an uncomplicated adult, like we saw in case number one, starting a long-acting stimulant is first line. Uh, this is most common approach in the U.S., and Lystexamphetamine or Vyvanse is the safest choice among them. Um, however, kind of a population-minded approach would then indicate starting uh, a long-acting methylphenidate-based stimulant uh, being kind of the best place to start, considering that uh, insurance issue that we see a lot of the times in Vyvanse, at least in the States. In reality, in about 50% of cases, we eventually try amphetamine like Adderall anyway. So how do we actually start this? Um, with either amphetamine-based stimulants or methylphenidate-based stimulants, uh, we're going to start at about 10 milligrams every morning of long-acting medication. Um, we're going to increase that by about 10 milligrams total daily dose every two weeks. Uh, and in patients at greater risk of side effects or misuse, uh, we can slowly increase that to about four-week intervals. Uh, or in patients who are at low risk and greatly struggling, like about to lose a job, one can actually speed that up to about one-week interval increases. 
and in general we can say that we can increase this uh, until the FDA max for ADHD, which for methylphenidate is about 60 milligrams total daily dose, and for uh, mixed amphetamine salts like Adderall is about 40 milligrams total daily dose. So for patients who are normal metabolizers, we would expect the medication to last about eight to 10 hours, which is enough to get through a normal work or school day. Uh, if a patient is um, a, a poor metabolizer, uh, we might expect that to last a little bit longer, so 12 to 16 hours, which could potentially cause insomnia. Uh, and in that case, what we'd actually do is we could actually switch them to a short-acting uh, medication just in the morning, uh, and that usually will last them throughout the day. Uh, if a patient gets um, a, a good effect from this amphetamine-based stimulant, but it only lasts about four to six hours, uh, they may be what's called a rapid metabolizer. And you can get testing to confirm this, actually. And uh, what they can do is they can increase the doses a little bit, uh, but not unreasonably higher. And in general, we like to tell patients uh, we should be tracking function, not feeling. Yes, now that Jonathan has received uh, his, his excellent care, we can move along to our next case. <laughs> So for case number two, <laughs> Jonathan's doing great, right? Jonathan, Jonathan's doing great. He's been he's been treated and seen by uh, you know two of the two of the top flight psychiatrists that are out there. All right, all right. Let's let's do some good work for uh, our next case. This is going to be Mary Gutierrez. Uh, she's a 32 year old G2P2 with no relevant medical history, who notes that recently she's had increased issues focusing at work as a school teacher. She's always had a tough time focusing, but it has only recently started affecting her work life. And she's coming in to request an ADHD evaluation. So given this background, how would you generally approach this patient? I think it's important to recognize that I think, as we said earlier, attentional problems can come from a lot of different places. And certainly, um, adjustment disorders, anxiety, depression are very common reasons why people's attention um, changes. Um, it, in this particular case, you know, I would want to know a little bit more information about what's happened recently at her work life. If this is a, a change that, uh, has come up in the context of, you know, certain changes at work, um, or, you know, certain, um, things that she was able to utilize to support her function that are no longer present, um, or whether this has been a challenge really ever since she started teaching or a long-term challenge. Um, so again, just like the approach for case one, you'd want to get a sense of a, what symptoms is she experiencing now? B, are there other symptoms she's experiencing now that are confounders to potential ADHD, like anxiety, depression, um, adjustment symptoms? Um, you know, does she have a long-term um, uh, concern with uh, attentional impairment since childhood? Um, and how can we verify that if that's the case? Um, so again, looking for a long-term diagnosis as opposed to um, you know, diagnosing specifically on the symptoms that are coming up at this moment. I think most people adjusting to the pandemic have faced a lot of difficulties in how they approach their work-life balance and balancing all the different tasks that are facing them, uh, especially teachers, especially frontline health workers. There's... I. So many of my consults have been like, I started working from home and now I think I may be on ADHD. And sometimes it's totally valid. Sometimes it's like, yeah, you 
you struggled so much and you came up with these coping mechanisms and there were definite dysfunctions that occurred and yet you still got to your place in your job and then the pandemic happened and now your coping mechanisms are not working anymore and you have undiagnosed ADHD, you know, and, and it just varies. Whereas other times it's like, no, you hate your job or you hate working from home or you have young children at home and who can possibly work in that situation. And it's not ADHD. We don't need to put you on stimulants, but we need to figure out a system to help you to accomplish your goals. Yeah. I mean, if you think about all the things that can be helpful that are non-medications for patients who have even kind of low level ADHD symptoms, you know, regular physical activity, a lot of structure and social support in, you know, work or school settings, um, um, clarity in kind of goals of your job and a way to you know, have someone help you track those goals over time. The pandemic disrupted every single one of those things. Um, and so for so many people who went from working to uh, in a place with other people where they could be active and had, you know, project managers to help them structure what they were doing to self-structuring at home with very little feedback and very little ability to move their bodies around like they wanted to move. Super hard, super hard. Yeah. Well, so uh, in the course of this wonderful um, holistic and historical workup, uh, we determine uh, that Mary actually meets the diagnostic criteria for major depressive disorder uh, with no underlying anxiety. She is placed on a fluoxetine trial and after six weeks returns to us noting that many of her depressive symptoms have gone away, but still is complaining of a lack of focus. What are the treatment options at this point? And when would we be considering something like Wellbutrin for this patient versus a direct uh, ADHD treatment? So I, I am of the opinion that if it's ADHD, treat it like ADHD. Give them a stimulant unless there is a significant contraindication, um, which we'll get to later, but you know, like substance use disorders, other types of issues, cardiac history, things like that. Um, but if I'm, I, I often die, I have a pretty high bar for diagnosing ADHD. I, which I, which I'm open with about patients. I really look for dysfunction in multiple, multiple areas of their life. And I often diagnose people with subclinical ADHD traits. And I tell them, yes, you struggle with procrastination. And yes, you struggle with this and that. And yet you have not experienced significant dysfunction in your, in your life in multiple areas of your life because of this compared to the patients that you talk to who like you ask them, oh, have you ever lost things? And they're like, oh my God. <laughs> Let me tell you about how many times I've lost my phone and my wallet and my credit cards and everything important that I've ever had in my life. You know, it's just, it's just different. Um, so I, I do, when I think someone has some traits, I am very open to trying Wolbutrin or Shotera or Clonidine or Guanfacine to see if that helps. I just, I just don't tend to put them on a stimulant trial, but I'm interested what you would have to say, Sean. I think very similar. <clears throat> I think 
you know, if somebody has those traits, I might maximize any of the non-pharmacological treatments mm -hmm. and then think about um, pharmacological treatments that have some crossover with ADHD, but are non-habit forming. So, you know, I think the um, Cochrane um, meta-analyses showed that Wellbutrin actually in, in a meta-analysis actually had fair function for ADHD as a primary diagnosis, mm -hmm. which is interesting. Um, so augmenting an SSRI with a low dose of a um, Wellbutrin, you know, for ongoing either depressive symptoms or for some attentional, motivational, energetic symptoms um, related to depression, I think can be helpful if you've exhausted some of those other non-pharmacological um, treatments. So Mary is going to return to us one year later after the successful treatment of both her ADHD traits and depressive symptoms. And she's reporting that she's now pregnant. What is the general approach to medical management for uh, ADHD, and I guess in this case, the major depressive uh, disorder as well uh, in pregnant women? This is really challenging because there's not a whole heck of a lot of data yeah. around this. I think it's medications in pregnancy are generally very challenging because of that deficit of data. My common practice is actually to contact uh, our psychiatric colleagues and the women's health clinic and ask them specifically, what do I do? Um, and they always have a great answer. But my understanding um, around stimulants is that there is a, you know, stimulants generally have been historically category C, so no evidence of risk, no evidence of big harm, um, of safety either. So somewhere in the middle, um, just not a lot of evidence. Um, and I think most providers would say, hey, if your symptoms are mild or you're using a low dose of a stimulant, maybe you should try going down or off and see what the effects are. I think there was a Harvard Center for Women's Health that basically recommended that any pregnant mom should go ahead and try to taper down or off of their stimulant. But I think other bodies are a little bit more ambiguous about that. And there is clear evidence for women who have very severe ADHD that dysfunction during pregnancy is very problematic for both her health and the fetus's health. And so I think it's really important to not, um, not, and this is my learning from pregnancy altogether, is, is not to just yank people off medications um, if they're category C, um, is to really think with the patient what would happen if they were off medications, what would life look like for them, maybe to consider a, a dose reduction um, a little bit to reduce that exposure, but to get them off it completely, it seems like the data is not in a place at this point that says we should absolutely get everybody off of their ADHD treatments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say I similarly see it the way we see antidepressants frequently, which is that we know that untreated depression and anxiety can pose a harm. We don't know about the harm posed to the developing fetus beyond like serotonin um, withdrawal syndromes soon after birth and and to just have a um, you know, informed consent process. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to her successful delivery of her baby. Yeah. Um, case number three, Mark Jenkins is a 55-year-old male who notes that he has had trouble focusing his entire life, including grade school, where he constantly was getting in trouble for misbehaving and not focusing in class. Mark has a complicated medical history, which includes an MI six years ago, hypertension, 
25-pack year history and a former uh, methamphetamine use, clean for four years. Further psychiatric workup for depression and anxiety is negative. And so my question is, is what is your kind of approach to treating ADHD uh, in a patient with a past medical history of substance use? I would say that, again, I think of a past history of substance use potentially being an indicator, like additional evidence of potential ADHD or being evidence of someone who has struggled in various ways and substances have been their main coping mechanism. And I have to differentiate between the two, like whether the substance abuse stemmed from their undiagnosed ADHD or whether they are someone who has other difficulties and they have turned to substance use to cope with those difficulties. Um, and, I, and I don't think of substance abuse as being an absolute contraindication to treatment, even with stimulants. And maybe, maybe it's because I'm fairly um, early in my career. I might be a little conservative. I might make them wait a couple of months. I might um, ask them to, I, I have one patient I can think of who I asked them if I could talk with their parents because they had a history of methamphetamine abuse. And yet in the office, they seemed a hundred percent to be struggling with ADHD. And so I, I, I asked to talk to their parents. I put them through kind of several different hoops, as you might say, um, which they were completely comfortable with and eventually got them on a stimulant medication that they tolerated really well and that helped them to take care of their young infant. Um, but, but, I, but I'm still evolving my process. There's no right answer. There's no textbook for it. I'm still figuring it out. So that's where I'd be really curious to hear what Sean would have to say. I think I think it's really tough. It's really tough because patients absolutely who have ADHD are going to be at higher risk of substance use disorders and patients that with histories of substance use disorders are at higher risk of negative effects from stimulant medications. Um, and so really it's a developing, in my mind, developing rapport with a patient, seeing them over time, seeing how invested they are in their care. What I often do is I will not even put stimulant medications on the table in my first number of appointments with them. And it becomes very clear whether somebody's really interested in getting help for their ADHD or whether they're interested in a stimulant medication. If if they're and and some patients absolutely do get help from things like Wellbutrin, do get help from things like um, Estratera, do get help from things like Guanfacine or Clonidine, um, and and get enough benefit from those that they can actually function better. Some patients don't, but if they go through that process and show that they're really invested in it, and we build rapport over time, I might feel more comfortable with them. You know, starting very carefully, low doses of stimulants, monitoring very closely, having clear, you know, stimulant medication um, prescription agreements with them, um, you know, to be really clear about um, urine drug screens over time for their safety, because we would hate for them to get in a cycle of addiction again that's going to cause further problems for them. So, I mean, that's that's my general uh, 
kind of approach at this point. Mm -hmm. And that would be a time that I would maybe, if I was going to do a stimulant, I would maybe consider something like Vyvanse if it was financially feasible because of the lower risk of abusability. I think long acting medications are generally the way to go. Um, anybody, they also, you know, prevent the the ups and downs, which can really um, trigger the euphoric feelings associated, mm-hmm. um, and, and that might trigger um, kind of rekindling of those addiction pathway, pathways. In the case of a patient um, that didn't necessarily have a, a history of substance use, uh, but rather had this patient's comorbid hypertension, cardiac history, um, I'm kind of curious how that would change or influence uh, your treatment at that point. So, you know, they've actually done a fair amount of study on the effect of stimulants on patients with cardiac conditions. And the most recent um kind of review of that indicated that as long as a patient's cardiac symptoms were stable and you were closely monitoring them, that the risk of stimulant treatment was fairly low. If patients' cardiac symptoms were unstable, then um, that risk was higher and you should not treat them at that point. Um, again, m- my most patients who have had an MI probably have a cardiologist And what I would generally do is run it by them, do a little curbside consultation or an e-consult and ask them to weigh in on the risk of a a stimulant medication in this patient. They actually have pretty good, my my experiences as a cardiologist have a really good sense of what's going to be safe or risky for patients. In the case of a patient who was initially uh, low risk uh, from a substance use uh, perspective, um, but you noticed has been requesting their stimulants early and has had sent, sent several messages asking you for increased dosages. I'm kind of curious how you navigate um, patients' requests when you're concerned about a possible use disorder. You know, also stemming back to an earlier question about someone noticing that their stimulant dosage has not completely alleviated their symptoms of ADHD. I I think sometimes we encounter patients who are taking higher and higher doses of their stimulants because they feel like their symptoms of ADHD should be eliminated and yet they are still present. And, And so what else would you do other than take more of the medication designed to treat that condition? Um, Then there's also those who are intentionally misabusing it. Um, I, you know, always refer to our prescription drug monitoring database every single time for any patient on any controlled substance. I review that, which allows me to see not only in Oregon, but um, in Washington as well, and and some other states that is connected to any controlled substance they've been receiving. I have had consults for patients who are on like 80 milligrams of Adderall daily from a psychiatrist and 80 milligrams from a nurse practitioner at the same time each day. Um, so, so it becomes a problem. Um, but I, in general, I try to focus on, you know, what is the reason they have been asking for earlier refills? What are they struggling with? What's been going on for them? Because my patients with ADHD struggle to remember to refill their meds. They don't struggle with taking, they struggle with forgetting to take them, forgetting to refill their prescription. 
uh, losing them in an airport somewhere. You know, they they are not the ones that I'm really worried about misusing their stimulants, similar to patients with severe anxiety who are too worried about whether or not they should take their benzo. And so they call a provider to say, like, is it okay if I take this? My patients with ADHD, I, I don't worry about them misusing their meds. I worry about them not using their meds. Before we go off this case, if it's possible, I think um, one additional um, thing that comes up really frequently, especially in Oregon or other states where cannabis is legal, that I think is really important to talk about related to substance use, um, is, and I don't think is is addressed in any of the other cases so mm. far, um, is um, we have fairly abundant evidence at this point that regular cannabis use depletes neuronal dopamine stores. And so therefore, it's really quite common that people who are regular cannabis users will have attentional impairments. And maybe people who are at that kind of as Dr. Rodriguez was talking about earlier, kind of that sub threshold ADHD traits, but who become chronic cannabis users actually have much more significant concentration problems than they did previously. And um, I found that a really helpful thing in talking with patients uh, about the interactions between cannabis use and their attention, both as a way to say, well, we can do something really real for you right now and help you find ways to manage the cannabis use and your attention may get much better um, just with that. But alternatively, to say, you know, we need to probably not prescribe um, stimulant medications because they, you might not have enough dopamine to even mobilize at this point to make sure that the to make the medications work. And I think it's important for us most at this point to really focus on reducing the cannabis use, if possible, to improve your attentional function, as opposed to just not acknowledging the cannabis use and and calling this ADHD and treating it. Um, I think that's important to know about um, in this day and age and in a state where cannabis use is is legal. Yes, an, an important consideration in the 21st century Pacific Northwest. Yeah. All right. So uh, it's not that we don't like Mark Jenkins, but uh, we have done good by him. <laughs> and we'll be moving along to our next case. So I'd like to introduce uh, both of you to Samantha Pete. Uh, she's a 24-year-old woman who's been successfully treating her ADHD with a 5 milligram instant release Adderall twice daily for about the last seven years. However, she notes that she's always been sensitive to many forms of criticism, and she's called to speak with you today about rejection sensitivity dysphoria, or RSD, which she saw noted in an ADHD article she was reading about last month. So what is RSD, and what's its association with ADHD, and how does it complicate an ADHD diagnosis? The, the studies... Um you know, both out of OHSU, Dr. Joel Nigg's lab, as well as folks around the country, do very clearly indicate that there is a, a subpopulation of patients with ADHD who struggle significantly with emotional changes, um, emotional reactivity, emotional swings, that may be part and parcel of the ADHD that they experience. Now, that's not a universal ADHD experience. I think it's important to acknowledge that that's not a diagnostic criteria. And there are a lot of people with ADHD who don't have those reactive emotions. Um, but 
the frontal lobes of the brain control a lot of different um, activities of our brain. And one of those activities is to some degree emotional regulation and significant executive functional impairment can cause challenges controlling emotions. So there is, uh, again, a subpopulation of patients with ADHD who do struggle with their uh, emotions. I think the rejection sensitive a sensitivity dysphoria is a, at this point um, a, a construct that has been created to try to capture some of that, um, but it's not been studied to the degree that it's incorporated in DSM-5. Um, it is also important to note that um, the that type of um, interpersonal mood reactivity dysphoria can absolutely occur in other diagnoses as well. So major depressive disorder, borderline personality disorder, anxiety disorders in some certain situations, post-traumatic stress disorder, a whole number of things. And it's important to evaluate patients with ADHD should they have emotional problems for those other diagnoses um, as well. Interestingly, Dr. Nig's uh, lab, at least the data they showed us not long ago, seemed to show that folks who do have those emotional challenges with their ADHD um, do benefit from um, cognitive behavioral therapy um, is the is the type of treatment that's most effective. So, you know, what they kind of recommended is, hey, if somebody's got their ADHD plus the you basically treat their um, underlying attentional or hyperactivity concerns with medications. And then if they have this overriding emotional swing, refer them to cognitive behavioral therapy on top of that to manage that. And honestly, shouldn't every middle schooler be getting CBT? Like that should just be what we teach. You know, we all need it so badly. <laughs> yeah. I'd say expand it beyond the middle schoolers too. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond the middle Absolutely. schoolers, but at least start it at that point. I don't need to like carry an egg around my school. I need to learn how to regulate my emotions. Yeah. Um, RSD. Yeah. It's complicated. I've had so many patients ask me about it and my biggest issue, I think it's a really interesting emerging area of research. My biggest issue with it is that if you Google it, there is one dude who is talking about it, Dr. William Dodson, who is also like an editor or something of a major ADD magazine. So he's already the person providing the content for the magazine. And I can't find any other interesting articles about it other than his, which is why I liked Dr. Nig's um, presentation. And I, and I liked what he said. He said um, that it seems like hyperactivity only present in a subset of the ADHD population. We have a lot of adults with ADHD who no longer display symptoms of hyperactivity. And we maybe have a subset of those who do experience emotional dysregulation. But I worry about it precluding people from accessing treatment that would be beneficial for them, like DBT, if the origin of their emotional dysregulation is not entirely related to ADHD. Um, so that's where I, I, I feel like it's, it's, it's just it's complicated for me. And then there's also, have you guys heard about recognition responsive euphoria, RRE? No. It's a new one. Uh, it's a new one. It is the opposite of rejection sensitive dysphoria. It is when you are really happy when people do um, praise you. 
So it's I, I just worry about the over pathology, like overly pathologizing normal human experiences through the lens of certain diagnoses and certain acronyms being applied to them. Because now apparently if you have ADHD and someone is happy and positively recognizes you, you have RRE or recognition responsive euphoria. Excellent. Well, Samantha highly appreciates the nuanced <laughs> and uh, thorough. Sorry, uh, that was so lengthy. Through this very interesting <laughs> landscape. No, it's a highly, highly educational. I appreciate the the fine touch you have. Well, one thing that I think this does point out too is that we always have to humble ourselves in the long history of these diagnoses, yeah. and and that what um, diagnoses know? change a lot of, over time. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, like ADHD, um, I can't remember which. DSM it was in used to include you had to have sleep difficulties um, mm-hmm. um, as a part of ADHD. It is quite common that that um, kids with ADHD will have challenges waking and challenges getting to sleep. It's kind of like a sleep phase shift. And that used to be a diagnostic criteria for ADHD. And if you didn't have that, you didn't have ADHD. And they recognized there was a subpopulation that didn't have that. And so over time, they shifted that and took that out because it allowed some of those patients to get care. So, um, so I think that was important um, to know that over time, we got to humble ourselves. I think even from Joel Nick's lecture, he discussed that the emotional um, aspect of things was a prior diagnostic criteria for, I can't remember the acronym at this point, but mm-hmm. the condition that used to be ADHD. So Samantha's fine. She's fine. She's chilling. A little bit, a little bit of CDT, and everything's better. Well, you know who is not fine is case number five. Okay. Um, Jim Brown uh, is a 37-year-old male with an 18-year history of poorly managed anxiety disorder. Uh, Jim has tried several SSRIs, Buspar, and alternative therapies, uh, but has not been successfully treated. Jim has been referred to you by his PCP, who is unsure how to proceed given his treatment resistance. Uh, and so the first question here is, in your experience, what conditions are oftentimes misdiagnosed as something else while ADHD is at the core of the issue? So certainly, I, th- I think we often see depression or anxiety disorders um, where the depression or anxiety symptoms are moderate to mild, situational, maybe based on periods of higher stress load or cognitive load. Um that, that can be ADHD and looking for longer-term attentional problems um, that are associated with that. Um, trying to think of others. I mean, I think there is a long history of inappropriate bipolar diagnoses mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where really ADHD is one of a number of different things that could be um, a, a more apt diagnosis for somebody who has you know, changes in cognitive and mood states rather rapidly. Those are some of the first things that come to my mind. I love to give the example of just like you decide that you're into weaving or knitting or worm composting or something and you research the crap out of it and you buy all these materials for it and then like two days later like you're over it, you know? And and people get misdiagnosed for bipolar, and I'm like, well, that could be ADHD as well. You can have these times when you really identify with this thing, and you get so much 
reward out of identifying with it and you put so much effort into it, but you're not grandiose and you're still sleeping and you're not manic and it's okay, but it can often get misdiagnosed as ADHD and then if you, if you or as bipolar and then if you throw in substance use, which you're already predisposition to be at greater risk of abusing substances, it can, it can really confound the whole situation. Awesome. That's, I think it's really great context and uh, forgive me if we've already kind of answered this, but how much you, how might you approach uh, a patient like Jim uh, in trying to see if ADHD or something else is at the core of the condition? I, again, I often go back to childhood symptoms because of ADHD being a neurodevelopmental disorder. Um, and some patients are not that great at recalling their childhood experiences. So sometimes I say, you know, take a week, talk to your siblings, talk to your parents, if that's even an option, which is not an option for everyone. Um, and, and get some more information to me about it. But I, I think that long standing difficulties in childhood, um, really are a core feature of the diagnosis. And if you have ADHD, it affected you in childhood, no matter how smart you are, no matter what your coping mechanisms were, it affected you in some way or another. And you might not always remember it, but someone probably remembered it. And I, I look to, to seeking that out. And then again, that informs the treatment as far as medications are only one part of the treatment and learning how to um, un, you know, unnegatively judge yourself for not being good enough or trying hard enough or not working hard enough. That, that's a much longer process in the, in the whole scheme of treatment. One other super fun pearl I think is is interesting to know about, and I forgot to mention this in other conditions that might actually have ADHD at the core of them. One of the one of the interesting things um, about people who are hoarders is that ADHD is really really common amongst hoarders, um, and if you think about it, it makes sense. And part of the challenge in getting rid of stuff is making a decision about what stuff to get rid of. And if you have a really hard time making decisions, you end up just keeping stuff Mm -hmm. and you end up with a house full of stuff and you can never figure out how to get started on that giant project of getting rid of stuff. So that's another one that I think um, is, you know, if you see people who are super cluttered or hoarders. And a Which is an interesting thing now in virtual visits because we see people are in their own homes. So I wanted to interrupt one last time uh, to give a little bit of a reminder about what other uh, medical but non-psychiatric conditions can cause ADHD-like symptoms. Uh, and this list includes uh, thyroid conditions, uh, electrolyte imbalances, anemia, sleep disorders, in particular obstructive sleep apnea, uh, neurological disorders like seizures, uh, multiple sclerosis, traumatic brain injury, CVA, uh, neoplastic in particular in adults. Um, And then sensory deficits, so hearing or vision can certainly cause ADHD-like symptoms uh, and learning disorders, amongst many others. So when might you actually pursue a neuropsychological eval? Uh, Essentially any time you're concerned that it might not just be ADHD. If you need more than just subjective report of measurement of degree of attentional impairment, uh, or if you want more detail uh, in response to just overall cognitive function. 
And I have one last question for both of you. It's a little bit of a surprise question here. But if you could say one thing uh, or several things to primary care providers who see and diagnose a lot of ADHD, uh, from your experience, um, what would that be? I would say, first of all, thank you for being a primary care provider. You are doing the hardest job in the world. They're treating our most difficult patients, like hands down. They are treating the most complex patients, the most complex conditions. So first of all, thank you. And, and, and then I would say, I think a lot of people fear stimulants. I think stimulants are scary to um, non-psychiatric providers. And I know even as an early resident myself, I was kind of nervous about providing stimulants. And now I have much more of an approach of like, do I think they have ADHD or do I think they don't? And if I think they do, I'm going to give them stimulants unless there's an absolute contraindication to it. And if I think they don't, I'm not going to give them stimulants. I'm going to figure out other things. And I think sometimes there's a lot of anxiety about giving someone stimulants without psychiatric involvement or without like a neuropsych eval or something like that and and their job is so hard but but i think sometimes they see me as a consult and my rec is do the thing you already did you gave them stimulants like do that stimulants that you already did that's it that was a good idea i support you in that that was the right decision to make um and and yeah, and get better benefits and vacations. I don't know. Their job seems so hard. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, um, one thing that I would um, say, and that's helped me a lot in feeling secure about the diagnoses of ADHD that I do, is being very upfront about the need to get uh, um information from a family member who knew the child less than 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, in primary care, having a behaviorist or social worker, there are very clear forms, the SNAP for 26 item retrospective questionnaire. You can just have somebody go through that on the phone with somebody who knew that patient age less than 12 and it takes 10 minutes and it's done. And then you can very securely say, well, darn, that person certainly thought that patient had bad ADHD when they were less than 12. That's going to make me feel a lot better that this, you know, this is a longitudinal challenge for this particular patient. And I've ruled out um, at least um, a significant number of folks who might be just wanting to get medications um, in their adult years after a substance use disorder for performance enhancing reasons. Um, And it's really quick to do, secures your diagnosis. Um, If somebody's willing to let you do that, that's a good sign too, that they're Mm -hmm. really invested in the diagnosis and, and will listen to you even if ultimately in the long run that, that, um, that retrospective report, does not clearly say um, that they have those challenges, then you can start talking about other issues mm-hmm. as well. Does that probably um, come into you for some reason? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so I think that can be a really powerful tool just to kind of get that in the um, repertoire um, of practicing that when people have an ADHD concern. Yeah, I think I tend to, I really focus on functionality and concrete examples. I focus on losing things, failing things, forgetting things. I ask patients, how did you 
remember our appointment today? How did you get to our appointment on time today? Like what kinds of things did you have to go through to make that happen? And, um, and, and sometimes the diagnosis happens within like five minutes, you know, <laughs> they're like, or not five minutes, I shouldn't say that, like 10 minutes, but you know, sometimes they just say all the things and it's clearly spontaneous and they can just tell you like every time they've lost their phone and their passport and they don't know how they got here today and all these other things and they set ton alarms to be here and you're like okay yeah maybe ADHD is part of the problem I don't know let's explore further yeah it, it's I think after you see a number of patients with true ADHD, you get a sense pretty quickly which patients are exhibiting the symptoms, even in your interactions with them mm -hmm. um, of ADHD. I have a, I call it the ADHD plant in my office when I had an office up on the hill. There was this kind of droopy plant that hung over the side of the couch that the patients would sit on. And every single patient that had um, ADHD, primarily hyperactive, um, impulsive type, would hit that plant at some point <laughs> yeah. during the appointment. At some point, they would like flick it and they'd be like, oh, no. <laughs> Because it was, you know, it's a, a you know, a, an Im body impulsivity, hyperactivity that's hard for their frontal lobes to kind of control. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was, you know, quasi-diagnostic for yes. folks with that type of ADHD. Mm -hmm. So you get a sense of that in, in those interactions over time. Mm -hmm. That's a great tip. Green up your office, get yourself a plant, put it near the, uh, put it near the table and there see what go. happens. Mm -hmm. Surround them by nature. Yeah. 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 That's right. Thank you. Well, yeah, uh, Devin, Dr. Stanley, Dr. Rodriguez, I, I just wanted to thank you again uh, so much for giving us your time. Uh, I think this was wonderful, and I'm really excited to uh, get this all edited and uh, out to the masses. Please edit it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> At least podcast edit out our faces, so we don't have to worry about that. Thanks everyone for listening today. Uh, we are always looking for feedback. And so if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, uh, please feel free to email us at psychiatryexplored at gmail.com. Um, thank you and have a great rest of your day.